0: All right, uh, My name is Francis. Uh, if you guys don't know me, uh, I am the pastor of our college ministry, uh, which is called Beacon. Um, like yeah, like I said, I know we don't get many opportunities uh, to, to just all be together, like high school and college group. And so even though this wasn't planned, um, hopefully it's just a good opportunity for us to uh, just be together and to sit under God's word together. Um, yeah, let me go ahead and, and pray for us, and then we'll just jump into a time of God's word. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just our time together and thank you for uh, just the, the chance to, to gather as the church um, and the freedom to be able to hear from your word. We thank you, God, that you are God who has spoken, who has revealed yourself to us, uh, even though you didn't have to. Uh, even though you are so much greater and higher and transcendent um, than we are, and we are sinful and um, we are proud and uh, we want, we wanted nothing to do with you, Lord. You still, uh, in your grace, uh, initiated towards us in your love, and uh, you revealed yourself to us, and not, not just speak through your word, but allowing us to know your son. Um, and so I pray, Lord, just for our time as we study uh, from your word this uh, tonight, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you give us eyes to, to, to see uh, the beauty of Christ and your glory and ears to hear, and hearts that are humble and ready to receive. And so do a work by your Spirit in all of us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A.W. Tozer has a famous quote that you may have heard before. Uh, He said this. He said, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, when you hear that statement, how would you answer that question? What does come into your mind when you think about God? Who is God to you? What what, uh, place does he have in your life? How would you describe who he is and and the role that he has in your life? When I think about that question and just our day and age, and when I think about you guys specifically as, as students, high school and college students, I think a couple dangers um, come to mind when I think about that question. First, I think there is that the danger or there's a tendency for us to create our own version of God, right? We, we make our own uh, God according to our own image. Maybe you think of even classmates and they've said something like this to say, I can't believe in a God who, you know, fill in the blank. I can't believe in a God who condemns this or a God who doesn't like this, What are they really saying when they make that kind of statement? Well, they're saying that my God needs to agree with me on everything, right? My God needs to think the way that I do. My God needs to care about the things that I care about. And so what comes into your mind when you think about God, for those people, maybe that's you, is this incomplete or inaccurate picture of who God really is. We haven't actually gotten to know and to study the true God of Scripture, right? And not only that, but we haven't come to submit to him and what he said. And that's one danger for, for, for us, for young people uh, in our day and age. And for others, when it comes to this question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? The problem is that you just don't think about God very often. Right? And so uh, your understanding of God might be more orthodox, might be more traditional than you know, these other group of people, especially if you've grown up at church, but God is not the center of your life. God is one priority amongst several other priorities. And sure, maybe God has his time and his place in your life, which is Sundays, but there's competition, right? And, and when you hear that quote from, Nate, from Tozer, you think to yourself, is what I think about God really the most important thing about me? Is it really more important than uh, my major or the number of friends that I have or my GPA or where I'm going to school or my career path? Um, or perhaps even later on in life, is what I think about God really more important than who I'm going to marry or, or what I do for work or how much money I have in my bank account or my family and the number of kids that I have? Maybe you can relate to either or both of those dangers. Maybe you've seen that in others or you've seen that in the church uh, in your own life. The author David Wells, he once said this about uh, American Christianity. He said, the fundamental problem And the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. He says that God uh, weighs too lightly upon the church, that his truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. And when I read that quote, I wonder if that is true of our own personal lives as well. Does God rest too inconsequentially upon our own lives? I mean, think about, like, what are the things of consequence in your life? Like, what are the things that would really, like, alter your life or make a difference or the things that you worry about? What are those things of consequence? Does God weigh too lightly compared to those things? Does he rest too inconsequentially upon your life that he really makes no noticeable difference? And one of the things that will keep you grounded as a Christian, whether you're in high school whether you are in college, really in any season of your life, one of the essential things that will keep you grounded is having a proper and accurate and high view of who God is. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So we need to see God as he really is, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I think one of the best places in our Bibles that we can see that is Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 to 7. Um, Some of you may already be familiar with this passage. I was told that uh, Pastor David actually preached on this like maybe a couple months ago. Uh, But I think that's far enough away where you guys probably all forgot. (laughs) Um, But this is one of the most vivid pictures, right, of the glory of God in the entire Bible. Have you ever heard a a sermon on God's holiness? This is one of the go-to passages on that. Um, in this passage, the prophet Isaiah receives a supernatural vision of God in the temple. He sees God as he truly is. And so let's read our passage for tonight. Isaiah chapter 6, and we will be in verses 1 to 7. All right. I'll start in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Yeah, the revelation. If you look at verse one, um, that the context or the setting of our passage, it says, is the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, the year that King Uzziah died, and this was totally not planned, but um, coincidentally, as you probably know, yesterday um, Queen Elizabeth II passed away, right? And she reigned for uh, for seventy years, which made her the the longest ruling monarch in, in British history, uh, and. Like it made me curious, I don't know if you guys thought this too, it made me curious about how the royal family works and just like how the line of succession works because I had no idea. Um, And so I Googled it and then I looked at an article and there's like a giant flow chart. So I still have no idea how how it works. Um, All I know is is that uh, King Charles III is now the king, Uh, but he's like super old. He's like 73 years old. Um, And then after that is Prince William and then his kids, and then like their uncle, which is weird. But so if you know how that all works, you can tell me afterwards. Um, But just as Queen Elizabeth's passing is the biggest headline, right, right now around the world, um, or maybe here it's the heat wave, but around the world, it's it's Queen Elizabeth, right, her passing. King Uzziah's death at at that time would have been this pivotal, significant moment in Judah's history. Who was King Uzziah? Who was he? Uh, Judah had a a long history of good and bad kings, and Uzziah was one of the good kings. In fact, he was one of the better kings, one of the godlier kings. There hadn't been someone like Uzziah uh, in Judah since Solomon. And you can write down in your notes 2 Chronicles 26. Okay, 2 Chronicles 26. You can read that later on. Um, But it tells us a little bit about who he was. It says in that chapter that he ascended to the throne when he was just 16 years old, It says he was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was victorious over his enemies. Uh, He built towers in Jerusalem, and he strengthened the city walls. He expanded the nation's agriculture. And Uzziah reigned for 52 long and prosperous years. And and under his reign, Judah grew, uh, and, and they prospered. But Uzziah didn't finish as well as he started. He was powerful. He was successful. He was blessed and he knew it, and he grew proud. And in that chapter, 2 Chronicles 26, Uzziah disobeys God by going into the temple to burn incense at the altar. And maybe you hear that and you're like, like what's the big deal about that? Right? Like, isn't that a good thing to, to burn incense at the altar? Well, that was a privilege that was specifically reserved for the priest, and he was the king. Right? He wasn't supposed to do that. And so as a result, God struck Uzziah with leprosy and because he was unclean, he spent the rest of his life uh, isolated, unclean, alone until he died. And so this is the backdrop for our passage. This is who King Uzziah was. And I think the, that detail, that, that context helps us to understand our passage a little bit better, right? At least a couple ways. One is, I think, Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God is this contrast to Uzziah's failure to take seriously the holiness of God, Right? Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God, his response is this contrast to Uzziah's failure to take seriously the holiness of God. That we should be warned by the consequences of uh, this king's response. We should be instructed by Isaiah's example. But also, I think this is more significant, Isaiah's vision of God didn't just happen on some random day in some random place. Okay, God's self revelation to Isaiah comes during this time of hopelessness and fear. God reveals himself to Isaiah during a time when their circumstances felt very big, when their circumstances felt very overwhelming. I mean, if you're living in Judah at that time, the prevailing question on your mind would have been, okay, what happens next? Like, what are we going to do next now that our king of 52 years is no longer on the throne? He was such a good king. He was so capable. He was strong. He was successful. He's the only king that he's ever, that we've ever known in our lifetime. Like, think about how easy it would have been to just put all of your faith, your trust, your hope on someone like that. And then at the end of his life, to see him kind of fall away. He's he's struck by God with leprosy. He, he's cast out. He's excluded from the temple. He dies alone. And now he's dead, right? And and you have these enemy nations, Assyria, about to. Uh, they're, they're threatening. What about us? Let's pause and let's just consider how does this speak into our own life? Let me ask you, what is your version of the year that King Uzziah died? And maybe you are here tonight and there's this thing that is going on in your life and it feels just overwhelming. Like you have no idea what's happening next. You have, you just have all these like urgent, uh, urgent uh, pressing questions. You have no answers. And maybe you've asked that same question, what happens next? Like, this is all I can think about right now. I think it's often in these times that uh, that God graciously allows us to see most clearly. Right? Sometimes it takes this season of uncertainty, of, of suffering, of loss, to reveal to us where we've actually been placing our hope, whether that's placing our hope in a person or in a relationship or in a circumstance or in a particular outcome. And when it doesn't turn out like how you expected, expected when... Uh, when something doesn't go your way or when someone lets you down or when you lose someone even, right? You recognize the need for something greater, for someone that has more stability, someone that is more trustworthy. And I think it's in these moments where God desires to draw near, right? And he reveals himself to us. That's what he does here. And Isaiah desperately needed perspective, this vision of God. He desperately needed to be reminded that God is bigger than this circumstance, And so God gives him this vision of himself. And and here's the vision, verse 1. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So as you read those verses, I wonder just like the kind of picture that you're imagining in your heads. I think it's like, it's hard to completely describe, right? It's hard to like wrap our minds around. This is an incredible vision here. And this is like, we have to realize, this is probably Isaiah's best attempts to even just put it into words. I think at the very least, some of the big ideas that, that should immediately stand out are God's majesty, God's authority, God's sovereignty. We see that here. It says he is the king. He is the Lord. And and Lord is not a name but a title. Lord means sovereign one. It says he's high and lifted up. It says the train of his robe fills the temple. And what is God doing? It says he is sitting on his throne. He's sitting on his throne. Think about that. Judah's throne is empty. It's vacant because Uzziah has died. But heaven's throne is not. God is sitting there. Judah is in this fearful panic because of Syria. her enemies are threatening. But what's God? What is God doing? He's not frantic, right? He's not like busy. He's not panicked. He's not like walking, pacing back and forth. He's not surprised. He's not worried that any of this happened. He's sitting on his throne. There's some other characters in the scene. Um, it's the seraphim. This is actually the only place in the Bible where the seraphim show up. And so like no one knows what the heck they are. Uh, we just know that there's some kind of, like, angelic being, okay? And, and their name means fiery, uh, fiery ones. Uh, and so Isaiah says each of them has six wings. Uh, they're, they're, like, hovering over the throne. They're covering their faces. Uh, it makes me think of Moses in Exodus 33, where Moses wants to see God. And God's like, you don't know what you're asking because you can't see me, right? Or Otherwise, you'll die. Uh, they're, they're, it says the seraphim, they're calling out to one another. So they're not even, like, speaking directly to God. They're speaking to one another, they're, they're telling each other praises about God, and their voices are so loud that it says that the foundations of the temple are shaking. Now, what are they saying to one another? Verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when you or I want to emphasize something, we we bold, right? Or We, like, we underline, um, we add a lot of exclamation points to the end of our sentences, right? When we want to emphasize something, that's what we do. Right, if you want to show someone you're mad, just put one period. Right? When the Bible wants to emphasize something, it doesn't add exclamation points or underline or bold or things like that. It uses repetition. Okay, and we see that throughout the Bible, right? Jesus uses it, um, Paul uses it in Galatians. What's not common about repetition in the Bible is that is to repeat something three times. And when you look here, this is the only time that we see this repetition, right? This this threefold repetition. And it has to do with God's holiness. In fact, holy, that word holy, is the Bible's favorite word to put next to God. The the, the word holy shows up, describes God more than all other qualifiers, more more than all other adjectives in the Bible put together. Why? What does it mean that God is holy? I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind for us is uh, like purity, right? Or uh, righteousness or we think of like someone who's very uh, very good religiously good you right? think of someone who is holy um, they, they say grace before they eat a snack right or if someone who is holy they, they'll ask you like what did you read in your bible this morning or things like that right like that that's the picture we think of of holy someone that is blameless and without sin but I think that doesn't go far enough and most fundamentally the word holy in the bible means to be set apart so so for God to be holy means that he is separate, that he is completely other than everything and everyone else. When we use the word holy, uh, it's talking about the very godness of God, right? The thing that makes God who he is. Holiness is not simply one of the myriad of attributes that describes who God is. It speaks to the fact of who he is in totality, right? It is in this, it's, it talks about how he is this completely different category than us. He is so infinitely above us and greater than us. John Piper describes it like this. The word holy is the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibilities of language to carry the meaning of God eventually run out and spill over the edge of the world into a vast unknown. And here, I think, as these seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy to one another, I think they teach us something. Which is, they teach us that God is inherently worthy to be worshiped simply because of who he is. God is worthy to be worshiped simply because of who he is, that he deserves and he demands our worship and our obedience. Why? Because he is holy, because he is God, because he is king, and he has the authority to. I mean, do we think about that enough? I think for us, we are often so quick to just insert ourselves in the picture, right? We quickly bypass God's complete transcendence, God's complete holiness, and we jump to things that we like. We jump to God's love or his grace or his mercy. And don't get me wrong, those things alone are enough for us to worship God forever and ever. But the problem is that apart from the holiness of God, many of those attributes, they lose their reference point. God's love is a holy love. God's grace is a holy grace. God's holiness is what makes sin, sin. His holiness is what makes grace so amazing. And when we jump too quickly past God's holiness, we can end up presuming on God's grace. We think it's just there for us. We treat it kind of like free Wi-Fi. I think we, for us, we've, we've gotten so used to just uh, the luxury of wireless access everywhere. And we just assume, like, oh, it should be available to us. Right? Like, I should not have to pay for this thing. If I go to this coffee shop, it better have Wi Fi, right? Because if it doesn't, like, what's the point of even having a coffee shop, right? We just, like, we, we presume on this. What does it look like to respond rightly to God's holiness? Well, this is our second point the response. Verse five. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what happens when Isaiah sees this vision of God, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am ruined, for I am undone. He's making this cry of judgment. He's pronouncing a curse upon himself. And for Isaiah, this would have been familiar language because it's prophet talk, right? Right before uh, this, this is Isaiah chapter 6. There's five chapters, right, full of woes. Uh, even in chapter 5, verses 8 to 30, Isaiah fires off this series of six pronouncements of woes against Judah for their rebellion and their idolatry. But here, this seventh woe, and seven is this significant number in the Bible. Okay? It's, it's climax, it's completion. This seventh woe doesn't fall on another, doesn't fall on Judah, but it falls on himself. And think about it. Isaiah would have been considered by many the most righteous man in Judah. He was one of the greatest prophets. He was the the greatest preachers of his generation. And yet one glimpse at God's holiness and he is completely exposed. It's it's over. He's completely undone. Any and all pretense and self-reliance is shattered. See, as long as Isaiah could compare himself to the people around him he could keep this high opinion of himself right he can he can look at the next per, the person next to him and he can think to himself well I'm, I'm not that bad compared to this person right like look at how much i've served god But the moment that he compares himself to the ultimate standard god's holiness it was over and whatever gap might exist between you and the person next to you is nothing compared to the infinite distance between you and god's holiness And it's interesting what he says right calls himself a man of unclean lips. Now, why does he say that? A man of unclean lips. I think part of it is he understood that, as Jesus would teach later on in Matthew 15, that his lips or his mouth was just this overflow of his heart. And so I think he understands, oh, this is like, I'm sinful to the core. I think that's part of it. But more significantly, think about what lips would have meant to Isaiah as a spokesperson of God, right? Think about the role that your lips played if you were a prophet, Lips or your mouth were to a prophet what hands are for a surgeon or ears are for a musician or athleticism for a a professional athlete. For Isaiah, his lips was the linchpin of his identity. It was his greatest gift. It was his strongest asset. If there was one area in his life which he would have thought, oh, I have this under control. or If there was one area of his life he would have thought, oh, I have God's approval in this. It would have been his lips. It would have been his prophetic service to God. Now, let's pause again. Let's just consider this for our own lives. If for Isaiah, it's his lips as a prophet of God, if it's his, his service um, to God, then what is that thing for you? What is that thing that you consider your greatest strength or your greatest asset? What is that thing that you might take pride in over others that you point, back, that you point to when you say to yourself, well, you know, I, at least I have this going on for me. right? God, like look at this thing that I have in my life. Listen, these things are our gifts from God. They are blessings from him. But what can also happen is that we take these, these strengths, these assets, and we use them as a means of, of separating ourselves from others and keeping God at a distance. That these things can become blinders which keep us from facing just how much we still fall short and how much we really need God. Tim Keller put it like this. He says, We must repent of the things that we have done wrong that we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their own righteousness too. And so here, Isaiah repents of his righteousness, so to speak. And later on in Isaiah 64, he would say that all our our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. He knows even in this strongest area of my life, I'm I'm undone. See, I think when it comes to, to rightly understanding who we are before God, it's not just about what separates us from a holy God, right? which is our sin. Because I, I think most of us, especially if you've grown up in church, you get that. We, you, you get that we've all sinned, that that separates us from God, but that's just half of it. A right? right understanding of who we are before God also includes how we are accepted what makes us acceptable for, before God. And I think this is where I think a lot of us struggle. In Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And in that story, the Pharisee, this religious person, he looks at the, at the, at the tax collector and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner, right? I, like, I do religious things. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, in that, in that parable, I don't think that the Pharisee is oblivious to the fact that he's a sinner, that he hasn't obeyed the law perfectly. But he thinks that he is accepted on the basis of his own righteousness. He thinks what justifies him before God is his good works. But what does Jesus say in that that parable? Who's actually justified? Well, it's the tax collector, right? It's the guy who can't even lift his, his eyes up to heaven. It's the guy who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he doesn't appeal to his own gifts. He doesn't appeal to his own righteousness or his own good works. He appeals to the mercy of God. He, he points to what God has done. And here in Isaiah 6, Isaiah doesn't appeal to his lips. Right? He doesn't point to his greatest asset. He doesn't point to his service to God. No, quite the opposite, actually. He brings it before God in humble confession and repentance. And he says, even here, God, even this area of my life, I need mercy and I need Cleansing. How does God respond? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Does it surprise you that verses 6 and 7 are in our passage? Does it catch you off guard? Does it shock you that this happens here? Because it should, right? It should. This, the, the very definition of grace, unmerited favor, means that God did something for us that he was not obligated to do. In fact, if you look at Isaiah's response, he thinks he is so utterly hopeless that he wants to die, right? He thinks the resolution to this is just kill me, God, because there's no hope, because I'm, I'm a sinner. For us who are sinful and unholy, God is the one who needs to initiate. God is the one who needs to draw near But that is exactly what he does here. A God in all of his holiness is still a God who chooses to pursue and to draw near to his people. And that's the story of the the entire Bible, isn't it? And Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. God is the one who says to them, Adam, Eve, where are you? And, And this kicks off this whole narrative of this holy God who pursues sinners in order to redeem them, in order to bring them into relationship with him. Here in this passage, one of the seraphim flies over to Isaiah with tongs in his hand. And at the end of this tong, uh, at the end of those tongs is this burning coal that is taken from the altar. And look at where he applies it, right? He applies it to Isaiah's lips, he applies it to the place that he has just confessed. And imagine what that must have felt like. I mean, your lips are one of the most sensitive parts of your body. And a piece of burning coal would have immediately seared the flesh just instantly upon contact. And yet, that's, that's sometimes how repentance feels like, isn't it? That it is painful to come to grips with the reality and the guilt of your own sin before God. It might continue to be painful as God slowly removes certain sins in your life as you grow as a Christian. And yet, this was exactly what Isaiah needed. That this prophet of unclean lips has God's cleansing, God's mercy, this coal applied to his lips, and he receives wholeness receives forgiveness. And God says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Now the question for us when we read verse 7 is how can God just do that? Like how can Isaiah's guilt just be taken away and his sin atoned for just like that? Well, here's where the rest of the Bible fills us in. If you keep reading in chapter 6, God commissions Isaiah to go and to go preach. And here's the catch to God's ministry assignment to Isaiah. He says, you're going to preach, I want you to go preach, but they're not going to listen to you. Okay? The people are going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they will not perceive. They're going to have dull hearts and they will have blind eyes. And my judgment is coming. And after my judgment comes, it will look like the cities are laid waste. This is uh, chapter 6, right after our passage. It's going to look like this once majestic beautiful oak tree cut down to the stump. But in verse 13, God offers this glimpse of hope that out of that remaining stump that used to be this beautiful oak tree, out of that stump will come this holy seed. And, and that imagery of a holy seed, Isaiah picks up again in Isaiah 53. Right? And in that, in that chapter, he talks about this young plant, this, this root out of dry ground and only this time, this vision of God in Isaiah 53 is very different from the one that we saw in Isaiah 6. You guys might be familiar with this. This is on your handouts, Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 3. Here's this vision of God that we see. It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. As he was despised, and we esteemed Him not. And just like back in chapter six, it is foretold in that chapter that that the people will not listen. Okay, and I think verse one it says, "Who has believed what he has heard from us?" One more passage. Here's where those we connect those two chapters together. Turn to John 12. John 12, verses 37 to 43. In this passage, John is talking about that very point. Why people, specific, specifically the Jews, why they will not believe in Jesus. And to make his point, John quotes from these two uh, chapters in Isaiah. Verse 38 is a quotation from Isaiah 53. I'll just read it. Verse 37, John twelve thirty-seven. Second half of verse 36. It says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That's Isaiah 6. Now look at what John says in verse 41. He says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So who did Isaiah see? Well, he saw Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was the glory of Isaiah 6 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. John brings those two chapters together, gives us those two visions of God, and he shows us that the one from whom the heavenly seraphim hid their faces was also the one who had no form or majesty that men should look at him. That the one whose throne was high and lifted up was also the one who was despised and rejected by men. The one who was holy, holy, holy was the one who was smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Friends, this is the great paradox of the gospel. That the holy one that Isaiah saw in whose presence he became completely undone over his sin is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who would bear the penalties of our sin on the cross. You see, for us as New Testament believers, as Christians, if you want to understand the holiness of God, then there is no greater demonstration of that holiness than at the cross. Why? Because it was at the cross that God's holiness, we see, was so unbreakable. It was so absolute. It was so total that in order for his holy wrath and his holy justice to be satisfied, it required the death of his own son. That in God's holy love, he had to put forth his own son as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath for sin and to offer us forgiveness. It is there at the cross where we see how much God truly hates sin, how helpless we are as sinners to do anything to save ourselves. But it is also at the cross where, for us, we can have your guilt taken away and your sin atoned for if you would trust in Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen to that verse and just think about that contrast to our passage. If you are in Jesus Christ, because of his work, we can approach the holy God with confidence. And when we go there, what do we find? We find mercy and grace to help in time of need. John Calvin once said, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. It's only when we see, Calvin says, it's only when we see and we know God rightly that we see and we know everything else rightly. That God is the starting point. Our view of God is the starting point for everything else. And when we get that right view of God, when we get his holiness, then we, we, we gain this new self-awareness, right? We recognize truly how small we are, how sinful we are. When we understand that he is the king that is sitting on his throne, we can rightly interpret even the most despairing circumstances. Let me just give you a few quick exhortations and we're done. I think a few things this high view of God should produce in us. One is a serious reverence a serious reverence. It's human nature for us, I think, to feel threatened by greatness, right? To feel threatened by superlative. Um, guys, when you're working out at the gym and the person uh, at the bench or the squat rack right next to you is like squatting like three times your weight, what do you do? You're, you're threatened, right? You're like, I'm gonna go like do cardio or something or I'll do something else. Girls, when, when that really pretty girl walks into the room, all of a sudden you think to yourself, Oh, my hair, right? I hate, I hate my hair. I hate my clothes. Maybe you think you're pretty smart because you did well in high school. Or I guess some of you are still in high school. And then for you college students, you start your, your first quarter, you start your first semester in college where uh, everyone else is just as smart as you, if not smarter. And then you think to yourself, oh, like, do I belong here? Or like, should I switch majors? I'm threatened by like, this person's intelligence, they feel smarter than me. Greatness, even human greatness, threatens and exposes us. And I think the question is, why don't we feel that way more with God? I mean, if it is true with human beings, fellow sinners, then how much more should that be true with God? I mean, in our passage, Isaiah, the prophet of God, is completely undone when he encounters God. He is coming apart at the seams. And yet, for many of us, I think we can be like King Uzziah. We just casually... Stroll into worship service on a Sunday morning. We 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 casually come before the Word of God and we, we actually like we don't actually expect to even encounter God, right? We don't give thought to God's holiness at all. Does your life demonstrate a real seriousness and a reverence before the holiness of God? I mean, just listen to these verses. First Peter 1.16 says, Be holy as I am holy. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we're not talking about like a godlike perfection, but we are talking about this marked and measurable and observable holiness when it comes to the moral purity of your own life. Do you give as much thought to your private life as you do to your public life? Some of you, you serve with a ministry or some of you even hold like leadership positions, or you, you hang out with your Christian friends, and, and that's great, but what does your own walk with the Lord look like, right, in private when no one's looking? Do you take his word seriously? Isaiah here, he got this supernatural vision of God that we might not ever get, but for us, the most significant way that we see God speak, that we hear God speak, is through his word, because when, when scripture speaks, God himself speaks, and so are you listening reverently? Are you reading it on your own? Are you obeying what his word says? The second thing is a gracious humility. A gracious humility. When we see ourselves rightly in light of God's holiness, we recognize that we're not better than anyone else. Isaiah admits himself. He is a man of unclean lips. He lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He, He might be the most gifted person in all of Judah. He he might have spent the most time in full-time ministry than everyone else in Judah combined, but he knows that it doesn't necessarily make him any more godly. If you didn't notice, this passage is where Isaiah is commissioned as God's prophet. And I think this experience is necessary. It was necessary in preparing him for his ministry as a messenger of not only God's truth, but of God's grace. And maybe you've experienced what it's like for someone to preach at you before, right? Or... You've walked past like, uh, like a street preacher and, and nothing against like what they're doing, right? But like it, it feels sometimes like self-righteous. It feels like they're just yelling at you, like someone's just condemning sin, always pointing out what's wrong. It's a totally different tenor when, some, when that person has been transformed themselves. When you know that the gospel and God's grace has really taken root in their heart, it feels like they are coming alongside rather than looking down on. And that should be our posture as well. When before God's holiness, you know yourself to be as sinful as Isaiah knew himself to be. And yet at the the same time, when you know yourself to be purified and forgiven and justified and a recipient of God's grace as Isaiah knew himself to be, then it changes us. it teaches us this graciousness. It teaches us this humility. It compels us to service, to tell others of that same grace. And this is our last point, faithful obedience. Like we said earlier, Isaiah gets this really hard ministry assignment. God says, hey, you're going to go preach to people who aren't going to listen to you. Okay, but what does he do? He, he goes because God said so, right? And, and Isaiah trusts, and he does it faithfully for a very, very long time, despite how difficult and discouraging it might have been. what keeps him going in his ministry? What's this high view of God? which reminded him that God deserves his trust and obedience. It's this high view of God that reminded him that however bleak his circumstances might be, God is still on his throne. It's this high view of God which reminded him that his service was not just about preaching a message, not just doing stuff for people, but this high view of God reminded him that in what he's doing, the very glory of God is at stake. It's not just about his own ministry, but it's about the very glory of, the, the very glory of God. Let's go back to what A.W. Tozer said. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so what is that thing that comes to mind for you? Is God just a concept? Is he just this, this like part of your imagination, this part of your life, which weighs lightly and inconsequentially, or is God a reality? Is he the center? Does he weigh heavily, right? heavy enough to change everything about your life? When we have an accurate high view of God, everything else will make sense. We understand who we are, who God is, and all of life rightly. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that just as we heard from your word and we received this vision of you through um, the prophet Isaiah, Lord, I pray that you would Give us a clear, a proper, a glorious vision of you and your holiness. Help us to recognize that you indeed deserve all of our trust, obedience, worship, and our very lives. Lord, we confess there is a lot of things that compete for our attentions, whether that's big circumstances or uh, just misplaced priorities um, or just even our own pride and self-righteousness. Lord, humble us. Give us eyes to see. Help us to um, have this right view of you that will carry us through life, that will give us hope, that will compel us um, to, to be in your service, to be faithfully obedient. Do that in, in us tonight, and as we continue into small groups, uh, do that in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.